it's bright out there. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, we're pleased to have you here worshiping with us today. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Tom Lacey. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. And it's both a privilege and a challenge to bring the message this morning. This summer, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and today we'll continue with that series. But before we get into the message, we should pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the Bible, for teaching us and challenging us through your word. We thank you for inspiring Paul to write this letter to the church at Ephesus, and we thank you for preserving it for every church at all times and in all places around the world. Thank you for teaching us how we are to live as your people, unified in your global church. We pray that you will speak to, speak to each one of us this morning, that you will open us up to your message, and that you will move us to respond to your message, to glorify your name, and advance your purposes in the world. And we pray these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we've been studying the book of Ephesians, we've seen that one of the main points, and maybe the main point, is about unity within the church, about, God has take, about how God has taken people from various backgrounds and put them together into one unified church. That applied to the church in Ephesus in Paul's time, and it applies to our church here in Fairfield today. Perhaps you've noticed, as I have, that not everybody in the church is the same. Uh, we do things differently. We dress differently. We eat different foods. We live in different towns, in different types of homes. We have different occupations. We speak different languages. We root for different baseball teams. Um, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of ways that we're different. And there's differences that relate to the way we worship and to our faith. We sing different songs, or we sing the same songs, but sing them in a different way. Just as an aside, am I the only one who believes that Amazing Grace was just fine before we added our chains were gone? Um, that was my favorite hymn. Um, where are we? We sing the same songs, but sing them in a different way. We pray differently. Some of us like to hold up our hands and pray facing God. Some of us are more like this, leaning over with our eyes closed. Um, we have different ideas about what the church should be doing and how we should be doing it. And maybe we disagree about certain doctrines of our faith or about how to interpret certain Bible passages. Of course, if someone differ, disagrees with me, I'm the one who's right and they're the one who's wrong. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, though sometimes we take that attitude. We feel like we're the right ones and everybody else is wrong. We need a little bit more humility. And when people with all those differences, as we are, are together in one church, sometimes there it results in some friction. We irritate one another. We offend one another. Sometimes we anger one another. But even with all those differences and all those irritations and all that anger, God still expects us and he calls us to be united to be unified in Christ. So how do we maintain that unity of the body with all those factors working against it? Well, the past two weeks, we started to look at the answer to that question. Two weeks ago, we saw that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with humility 
and gentleness and patience. Last week, we saw that we are to put off our old way, old way of life and put on a new life that's fashioned after the righteousness and holiness of God. In today's passage, Paul gets more specific about how to do this. In a sense, it's a commentary on what we looked at last week. Paul gives us guidance in several areas following that pattern of put off the old self, put on the new self that was introduced last week. Or to put it another way, it's a series of commands of the form, don't do that, do this instead. So let's read it. I'm looking at Ephesians 4.25, and we're going to read through chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's a lot there. And we'll be looking at this one verse at a time, um, but we're going to start at the end. Um, so, Tech Booth, sorry to throw this on you. Can you put that last slide up again with Ephesians 5, 1 and 2? Thank you. Um, so here it is. Therefore, be imitator of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This, or these two verses give us kind of the big idea, the answer to that question about how do we live in a way that promotes unity within the very diverse group of believers that we have here at our church. And the answer is that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. And as we go through our passage today, keep that in mind. We'll see how to do that. And as we look at each command, and there's a bunch of them, as we look at each command this morning, keep in mind that our goal is to be imitators of God and to walk in love. Before we get too far into this, I want to make a little grammatical or semantic point. Grammatically, what are all these statements that Paul gives us here? When he says, speak the truth, when he says, walk in love, when he says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Grammatically, what are those things? They're verbs. Um, are they instructions? Are they an encouragement? Are they suggestions? Are they challenges? Are they just wise counsel from an experienced pastor? They are. They're all of these things. But I think above all, they're commands. 
These are stated in the imperative. There are things that we are to do or that we are not to do. They're commands. And they have all the same force, all the same authority as any other command that you see in the Bible. So you can call them whatever you want, but throughout this message, I'm going to call them commands because I feel that's what they are. Now, let's get into them. Um, and we'll start with Ephesians 4, verse 25, the beginning of our passage. And verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Notice the beginning of this verse. It says, having put away falsehood. It's in the past tense. Another grammatical point. It's in the past tense. It's something that we should have already done and that Paul expects that the Ephesians have already done. The next step after putting away falsehood is the command, speak the truth. Why is speaking the truth so important? Now, it's because Paul answers that in the second part of the verse. He says, for we are members one of another. We are one body in Christ, and so we should be speaking the truth to one another. Honesty is an essential feature of the unity of the body. Without honesty among its members, the church just cannot work as God intended us to work. Think about the, using the analogy that Paul uses here, the body. Just imagine if, you're, if the parts of your body lied to one another. Suppose your eyes tell your feet that you have a nice smooth path ahead of you when in fact there's a pit right there or when you're about to walk off the edge of the stage like this. All right, that would be bad news. Um, or suppose your nose tells you that this carton of milk smells just wonderful when in fact it's gone sour. Or suppose your stomach tells you that you're hungry when you just finished eating a feast. Or maybe the other way around, suppose your stomach tells you that you're not hungry when in fact you do need to eat something. In all those cases, it could result in some real harm, some damage to the body. And so we should, and we would, we should, and we would treat any one of those as something abnormal. And we go call the doctor. All right? So the same principle applies to the church. When we lie to one another, the result is harm to the body of Christ. We can't work together in service to our Lord if we lie to one another, if we're not telling the truth. Last week in the adult discipleship class, and I'll throw in a plug for this. That's a great class. It meets at 8.30 before the service, and you get to talk about the previous week's service, uh, previous week's sermon. But last week, Bob brought up a point of sometimes when you read a passage in the Bible, you see a good command, and your response in your head is, yeah, but, and this is a yeah, but moment. <laughs> we should speak the truth. That's all well and good, but... Aren't there exceptions to that rule? Sometimes the truth is unpleasant. Sometimes it seems that a lie would be more beneficial to the hearer. What about little white lies? Is it okay to lie if it doesn't do anyone any harm? Is it okay to lie if the effect is more good than harm? This is actually a tough question. Um, it sounds pretty straightforward, but it is a difficult question. It's one that philosophers and theologians 
have been debating about for centuries. Um, so I'm not going to, be, I'm, it would be rather presumptuous of me to come out with an answer and say this is the authoritative answer. But I do want to give you a few things to think about here. First, when I claim that a lie will result in more good than harm, who's the one who decides what's good and what's harmful? Do I have all the facts that I need to make that judgment? Do I even have the foresight to make that judgment about what's going to happen in the future? Do I have the right to decide when God's commands can be disobeyed and when we have to follow them? We're getting into really dangerous territory when we start thinking that way. Another thing to think about, when you lie, even about trivial things, even little white lies, you damage your credibility. If you lie about one thing, what else are you lying about? Can others trust you to tell the truth about other matters? And I'm going to use an example from our family from years and years ago when our kids were little. When our kids were young and Christmas started coming around and everybody's talking about Santa Claus and you see the Santa Claus shows on TV and you see Santa Claus in the mall um, and the company I worked for actually had a big party with Santa Claus that we, the kids could come see. Um, we never ever told our kids that Santa Claus is real. That was a little bit tricky because our friends all believed in Santa Claus and we didn't want to spoil their fun. But we never told our kids that Santa Claus was real. We explained to them, Santa Claus is a nice story, it's a lot of fun, people like to tell this story and play, play games with it, but it's not real. And the reason we did that is because we, didn't want, we knew that sooner or later the kids would figure out that Santa Claus is not real. And we didn't want them wondering, well, if mom and dad lied to us about Santa Claus, what else are they lying about? Are they lying about God? Is God a myth, just like Santa Claus is a myth? And so we didn't want to be in that point, so we never told, so we told them the truth about Santa Claus. Now, I'm not saying that's the pattern that everybody should follow. All you parents out there with little kids, do you do what you think is best? It's just what we thought was best for our family. But the principle is there. When I lie about one thing, even if it's a trivial thing, others don't know whether I'm telling the truth about other things, about more important things. So, when we speak, an another point, sorry. When we speak, we must speak the truth, um, but something to consider is sometimes the best course is not to speak at all. Um, nobody has the right to know everything about everything or everything about everybody. So sometimes it's none of your business is the right answer to somebody's question. Now you should probably say it a little bit nicer than I just did. Um, but sometimes that's the right answer. Also, sometimes the listener is not ready to hear the truth. Sometimes they just can't handle it to quote Jack Nicholson, right? Um, don't lie, but maybe you want to save this discussion for another time when they're more ready. And one more consideration, and maybe this is the most important one. We say we want to be like Jesus. Did Jesus ever lie? I can't think of a time when he did. Um, and maybe you can, but I can't. 
I can't think of any time when Jesus lied. In fact, he described himself as the truth. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Um, so if we're following Jesus, we want to follow him in that way as well. Um, now, I don't want to be legalistic and say that it can never, ever be right to tell a lie. Um, but we need to be very careful about claiming that a lie is acceptable because it's for a good purpose. We are really good at justifying our sins, but they're still sins, and we need to be careful with that. All right, so much for the first command. Let's move on to the next one. In verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. So what's this verse about? It's not a command to get angry about something. Some people might, it says be angry, right? It's not a command to get, be angry about something. Rather, it's an admission that we will get angry at times, and that when we do, we should not sin. And particularly, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Or as Phillips translates it, don't go to bed angry. Um, or another way to put it is just deal with your anger quickly. Don't let it fester. Don't let it simmer in your thoughts and in your heart. Don't hold a grudge. Why not? Well, according to this verse, it's because unresolved anger gives the devil an opportunity. And we don't want to give the devil any opportunities. If you're holding on to anger against a brother or a sister in Christ... Satan will use that. He'll use it to drive a wedge between God's people. You'll damage the unity of the church, and you'll damage the witness of the church in the world. So we should deal with our anger, but we do need to be careful about how we deal with it. Don't let your anger simmer, but don't let it explode either. Um, the verse does not give you permission to let it all out in a torrent of angry, damaging words. We need to resolve our anger quickly, but graciously. I want to take a look at a couple other verses about anger that we find in the Bible. First one is in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5:21, uh, 521 and 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So anger is not a good thing. We need to deal with our anger quickly and graciously. Um, but how do, we, how do we do that? Well, that's a topic that would take two or three more sermons, so we're not going to do that this morning. Um, but I will give you one starting point for that, to answer that question. And that's actually in a couple verses down in verse 32, where it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. I think often that is the first step to dealing with your anger is forgiveness. 
If you forgive, you can deal with the anger. If you don't forgive, that anger is going to stick around and continue to cause trouble. Okay, so is that a problem in your life? I don't know. You have to think about that yourself. Is simmering anger something you need to deal with? Um, are you still angry about something that happened last month or last year or maybe 10 years ago? And I must admit, there are times when I think of things that happened 10 years ago and it's still, I still kind of clench my teeth and growl a little bit. Um, so if the anger, do I need to forgive somebody? You know, if the answer to any of those is yes, you need to ask God to help you forgive and help you deal with your anger. So I hope we got that command down now. Let's go on to the next one. And that's verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This one's pretty straightforward. Don't steal. Don't take something that's not yours. It's one of the Ten Commandments, so we all know this one. Um, and so I don't have a lot to say about this one, except to point out that there's more to it than not stealing. Not only should we not steal, but we should find honest work, or perhaps we already have honest work, but we should find honest work that provides the means to meet our own needs, as well as enough to help others who cannot provide for themselves. Well, that's all I need to say about that one, I think. Before we go on to the next command, I do want to ask a question. Look at these three that we've already looked at. Don't lie. Deal with your, don't let your anger get out of control. Don't steal. Is there anything surprising there? All right. Isn't this stuff that we've been learning since we were kids? Um, do we really need to learn this again? Do we really need to hear this again? Well, the answer to that question is, apparently we do need to hear it again. Um, that's why Paul is saying it. Paul is reminding us about these lessons because we need to be reminded. Uh, we've heard them before, but we've forgotten them. Or maybe we just stopped applying them. Um, it seems apparently there were a few liars and thieves and people holding grudges in the church of, in Ephesus in Paul's day. And I hate to say it, but I suspect there's still a few liars and thieves and people holding grudges in the church today. And we need to deal with that. We all need to be reminded of what God expects of his people in his church. And we will be, need to be reminded again and again and again. That's why we keep reading the Bible. Even those passages, those parts of the Bible that we've read dozens of times before. Because the scriptures teach us and remind us of lessons that we are ignoring or maybe we've forgotten. By the way, please don't think that because I'm the guy up here preaching about this stuff that I've got this all figured out. I don't. Um, I certainly don't. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. You'll just have to trust me on that. Because based on the first command, I'm speaking the truth, right? All right, next command, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, 
that it may give grace to those who hear. This one is tough. It's not tough to understand so much, but it's tough to obey. Even the Bible says it's hard. Um, and I want to take a look at a passage in, chap in James chapter two or chapter three, sorry, starting in verse two. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And now I'm going to jump to verse seven. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Quite a description. So we are to tame our tongues. We are to avoid corrupting talk. What is corrupting talk? Uh, some translations, perhaps the translation you use, calls it unwholesome talk. And the word would be used to describe spoiled fish or rotten fruit. Um, it describes something that's unhealthy, uh, something that's good for nothing except to be tossed out. Um, corrupting unwholesome talk. It includes profanity, but it's much broader than that. It includes any talk that tears down, anything that would be abusive, anything that's malicious, malicious gossip, uh, maybe all gossip. Isn't all gossip malicious? Um, those of you who use social media, you've probably noticed that much of what's posted out there, I think, would be properly classified as corrupting talk or unwholesome talk. Uh, one reason I don't do a whole lot with social media. I'm sure you remember the saying from childhood, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a nice, memorable saying, but it's wrong. Uh, words can do an awful lot more lasting damage than sticks and stones. Broken bones heal. Broken hearts, maybe not. So Paul says, and God says, that we should avoid unwholesome talk. But that's not it. That's not the whole thing. It's more than that. We're not just to avoid negative talk and leaving us with neutral, inoffensive words. We are to speak words that actively build others up, words that are appropriate for the occasion, words that give grace to those who hear, words that are beneficial to those around us. And that's a tough standard. Uh, the Bible says a lot about our talk, especially if you look in the book of Proverbs. And I will give you just one verse out of Proverbs. Uh, you can use your favorite Bible search tool to go look up some more of them, and you will find dozens of them. Uh, but Proverbs 12, uh, what you have up there is 17 to 19, but Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So ask yourself, which describes my words? Are my words like sword thrusts? Like I'm stabbing someone? Or do they bring healing? Let's keep moving. Let's take a look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This isn't a new command. It kind of summarizes everything that came before it. It encapsulates all that came before this. 
when we lie, when we don't manage our anger well, when we steal, when we speak destructive words, it grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our seal of salvation. He's our guarantee that we are in God's family. The one, he's the one who empowers us to live as Christians. And when we don't live up to our identity as God's children, God grieves. Uh, just as we would grieve if our child made foolish, sinful choices that we know will lead to heartache. I say just as we would grieve if our child did that. I should have said when, because every child does that, right? As do adults. But let's move on to the next command, which is in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Here's a list of attitudes that we should avoid, or as it says, as we should put away. Um, they are all associated with relationships with other Christians. They're all attitudes that would fracture the unity that God wants in his church. Notice that these commands are actually also all connected with the commands we've already seen. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Here we go. Um, bitterness and wrath and anger, they're connected with the command about anger. Clamor and slander, they're connected with the verses about speaking, about telling the truth and about speaking productive, profitable words. Malice fits in because malice kind of is the root cause of all these other things. And these are the things that we need to avoid. <clears throat> so remember I said all these commands are in the form of don't do that, do this instead. Well, verse 31 is the don't do that part of this command. And verse 32 is the do this instead part of the command. So let's look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This verse is an antidote to the previous verse. It's the opposite of the previous verse. This is the way we should be treating others in God's family. These are the attitudes that build up community, that build up the unity of the body and not tear it down. And we should be asking ourselves, which verse, verse 31 or verse 32, is a more accurate description of my character? Which one describes how I interact with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I bitter and angry and malicious? Or am I kind and tenderhearted and forgiving? If I'm more like verse 31, the bitter, angry, and malicious one, I need to repent, and I need to ask God to help me change and to make me more like verse 32. Now notice the last part of verse 32. As, Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. This is an important phrase, and it applies in two ways. We forgive because God forgave us, and we forgive as God forgave us. God's forgiveness is both the motivation and the model of our forgiveness of others. So if we're to forgive as God forgave us, how did God forgive us? How are we to forgive? Well, first, he forgives sacrificially. 
God's forgiveness required the suffering and the death of his son on the cross. Made big, big sacrifice that he made for our benefit. He forgives unconditionally. All we need to do is accept his forgiveness. There's no preconditions involved. He forgives totally and completely. He forgives all of our sins for all time. There's no more payment required other than what Jesus has already paid. If we look in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And one other point about his forgiveness is he forgives before we do anything to deserve forgiveness. Again, from Romans, this time chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He forgave us before we did anything. He died for us before we did anything to deserve that. So that's our model of forgiveness. We must forgive sacrificially. We must forgive when it costs us something. We must forgive unconditionally. We must forgive completely. And before the forgiven person does anything to merit our forgiveness. Can I forgive like that? I'm not so sure. It's not easy. Um, in fact, it's impossible to do that on my own. Um, I can only do it if God is helping me, if the Holy Spirit is working within me. So that's that command. Be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. And now we get back to the verses we started with in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's not introducing a new command here. This should not have been anything new to anybody reading this. Um, we see it in Jesus' teaching, and we see it as far back as the book of Leviticus, if not before. So in Matthew 5.48, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And to look at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God has already established this principle that we are to be like him. Paul is reminding us, reminding us of this truth, but it's nothing new. So how are we to imitate God? How are we to be like him? Well, we certainly can't be like him in his divine attributes. Right? We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. We're not everywhere all at once the way God is. We don't have his wisdom. Um, and if we try to do some of that, if, if that's our idea of being like God, well, that's where Satan went wrong. If you read about Lucifer and how he fell, that's where Adam and Eve went wrong. They were trying to do what only God should do. But so how should we be like, like God? Uh, we are to imitate God in his character, in his love, and in his forgiveness. Those are the two that are specifically mentioned here. 
Paul tells us how to be like him. And all these commands that we've already read, don't lie, deal with your anger, speak productive words, all those commands, if we follow those, we're going to be like God. We're going to be modeling God's character. We're going to be obeying Ephesians 5.1. And so that's what Paul is telling us we need to do. Now, why are we to imitate God? Well, again, according to this passage, we're his beloved children. It's because we are his beloved children that we imitate him. As his children, we want to be like him, or we should want to be like him. All right. Now, I'm almost done here, but before we wrap up, I want to uh, give you a word of warning, or maybe it's a qualification for everything that I've been saying. When we look at these commands, when we look at this command to be like God, or any of the other commands, or any command in Scripture for that matter, we need to remember that we cannot do it in our own strength. It's just not going to work. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit within us that we can be like God and live up to his standards and to obey his commands. Even with God's help, in this life, we're not going to perfectly reflect his character. We should be getting better and better at that as time goes on, but we're never going to be able to do it perfectly. And that's why we need to be tender-hearted and forgiving with one another, because none of us are perfect. And some of us will require your forgiveness at times. But over time, if we, if, we, if we allow the Holy Spirit to work within us, if we follow God's commands, we will get to be more and more like him, although we never quite reach that ultimate goal of being perfect. Okay, so you've listened to me long enough. Um, we need to wrap it up. So what are the main points of this passage? Um, First, we are God's beloved children, as we just saw, and we should strive to live as his children, reflecting his character, loving and forgiving others as he loves and forgives us. And how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us a bunch of commands, and they're up on the screen, right? Yes, they're up on the screen for you. First, tell the truth. Second, deal with your anger quickly and without sinning. Third, work to support yourself and to work to give to others. Fourth, speak uplifting words that build others up. Fifth, be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. And sixth, love as Christ loved you. Now, I must admit that I have a problem with this list here, with these commands. And maybe you have the same problem. All right. My problem is that there's too many of them. All right. I can't do all these things all at the same time. Um, so what do I do? It's just too overwhelming. Well, my suggestion is pick one. All right. Look at the list. Pray about it. Pray that God will show you the one area that you need to work on today. And if you have, and if you think you don't need to work on any of these, uh, go back to number one about telling the truth. Um, or ask your spouse. Your spouse will probably be able to tell you what you need to work on. Um, 
And when God shows you where you need to work, what you need to improve, pray that he will help you work it out. Pray that he will help you work on it, that he will change your heart to be more, and now fill in the blank, more truth-telling, more giving, more kind, more loving, more forgiving, whatever it is that he's telling you that you need to do. And then, don't just stop with a prayer. Start looking for opportunities to do what you've just told God you're going to do. He will, he will bring the opportunities, um, whether you want them or not. He will help you follow through on your commitment, and you will be doing your part to promote the unity of God's church. And I have one more comment, fairly lengthy, well, not too lengthy, but one more comment before we close. Who is this book of Ephesians, this letter to the Ephesians written to? Well, if, you, if we go way back to the very first verse of the very first chapter of the book, we'll see it was written to the saints in Ephesus. That is, it was written to saved people. It was written to Christians, to people who were in God's kingdom and in God's family. Now, I make that point for two reasons. First, they were saved, but they still needed to be told to do these things. All right, it's not automatic. Uh, we don't magically become sinless in a practical sense when we come to Jesus. It's true that when God is judging us as far as our fitness for heaven, he sees us as righteous, but that's only because when he sees us, he's seeing us through the righteousness of Jesus, not because our deeds are any good. Uh, we still need to work on these things, um, and it can be hard work, and it can be painful work, and we're going to be working on it for the rest of our lives, our lives in this world anyhow. Um, but we're not doing it alone. We're doing it with God's help. We're doing it with the Holy Spirit within us. The second point is, the Ephesians didn't have to have all this stuff set, have their life all put together and walking in love before they came into God's family in order to be welcomed into God's family. And you don't either. You just need to recognize that you're not living God's way and that you need help to do what is right and you need to believe that in Jesus and in his sacrifice for your sake and then come to God and ask him to help. And any subsequent changes in behavior and attitude will be God's work, not yours. And they come after you come to God and not before you come to God. Now, many of you, maybe most of you, already know that, um, but perhaps some of you don't. And if this is news to you, and if you want to know more about it, if you want to, more about, want to know more about what Jesus has done for you and how you can come to him, then catch me after the service, and I'd be glad to talk to you. And now that wraps up what I needed to say, so let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the lessons you teach us in your word. We pray that you will help each one of us to look at our life and see what you want us to do to better reflect your character and how we can better promote the unity of your church. Help us, Lord, to speak the truth. Help us to deal with our anger productively. Help us to speak words that build one another up. Help us to forgive. Help us to be like you. We know we cannot do this on our own, 
but that with you all things are possible. Thank you that we can know that you are working in us to make us the people you want us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.